Healthcare, as delivered in America today, has been the subject of endless discussion during the past few years, if not decades. There's almost universal agreement that changes need to be made to improve American medicine, yet there seems little consensus on what must be done. The dissatisfaction on the patient side of things is more than matched by the dismay of practitioners. As a physician, I've tired of these debates, while observing that the practice of medicine has without a doubt become ever more a burden on doctors. I don't think I know any doctors who are satisfied that things are getting better. I'm not sure I know any who think things are not getting dramatically worse. One thing I am sure of is that doctor and patients alike are not in control of their interactions, which are now impossible to decipher, as the machinery that delivers care has made the process incomprehensible. So, it was with pleasure mixed with relief that I read the new book by our guest today. It's not just the best thing I've read about our healthcare mess, it's the only thing I've ever read that squares with my first-hand experiences while addressing the issues I found to be important. The book is Overhauling America's Healthcare Machine, subtitled Stop the Bleeding and Save Trillions. Author Douglas Predney is a medical doctor who specializes in internal medicine and dermatology. Dr. Predney is also a writer, NIH researcher, and expert in telemedicine. He's also a professor of informatics, a new field concerned with the analysis and dissemination of medical data through the application of computers. This uniquely varied background gives Dr. Predney views of medicine from several perspectives, and I think that's why he succeeded where others have failed. At any rate, it's my great pleasure to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Douglas Prednia. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Doctor, I think we need to make uh, two parts to this discussion because any talk about cures must come after we make clear the diagnosis of what's wrong. So that's, I think, going to be our goal today. Okay. Well, first point I'd like to start with is something that I think you and I are well aware of, but the public may not be. When we talk about healthcare in America, we're no longer talking about an enterprise controlled by physicians. Doctors have been out of the driver's seat for a good while now. There's no question about that. In, in fact, uh, uh, I, I would say that doctors have been uh, pretty much um, moving steadily towards the sidelines of management of healthcare for about 20 years now. At least that's been my experience and the experience of. Uh, Virtually everybody else I know, and uh, in terms of everything I've read about, read or learned about healthcare in in the past uh, past thirty years, Sacramento was actually ground zero for one of the movements into HMOs during the nineteen nineties, and so that uh, unfortunately we were we were part of that major effort. But the, something I find interesting is that um, that healthcare is still the largest largest lobbying group in Washington D.C. Just that we're no longer talking about doctors or the AMA. Oh, there's no question about it. There there are. Um, literally uh, thousands of lobbyists in the healthcare business um, in, uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., um, spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year. And uh, they're pretty much overwhelmingly representing uh, insurance companies, um, uh, drug companies, medical device makers, uh, uh, companies like uh, AARP, who um, have their own special interest in, in uh, health care in terms of both earning their own revenue um, and in terms of, of, uh, of making it appear to their, their constituents that they're doing something. And there's, there are also organizations that people tend to think of as being doctor-run or doctor-operated organizations like the American Medical Association, but actually um, it's it's pretty much the case that many medical organizations anymore no longer represent doctors as much as they represent themselves. Uh, and they represent themselves as business entities 
not the person that you actually go see about getting sick. Um, for example, the American Medical Association has um, only 17% of the doctors uh, in the United States as its membership now. That's down from nearly 70% in the mid-1960s. And so you can, you can see that, uh, um, that the percentage of physicians they represent and the spectrum of views that they represent have, have narrowed dramatically in that time. At the same time, there, the AMA has hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues that don't come from its members, but instead come from the federal government uh, or other people um, who are required to buy AMA products and services uh, um, because of regulations promulgated by the federal government. Um, membership dues account for only $43 million of the AMA's revenue. So, so you can see that the AMA um, uh, has relatively little to gain from its clinicians uh, except for a veneer of um, representation and uh, a lot to gain from everybody else in the system. So it's a it's a, a real problem because the the people who who really matter in the process patients and doctors. I mean, when you come down to it, they're the only reason the healthcare system exists, the only justification for its existence, uh, and they've now been relegated to uh, to really the the sidelines in terms of determining what's going to happen, what should happen, uh, or what works for them. It's it's a very alarming situation. Well, you start the book comparing the U.S. to other nations, including those which have similar standards of living to our own. Uh, we spend more than any other country on our health care, 17% of our gross domestic product. And what's startling is that that's nearly double the amount spent by nearly every other developed nation. Yeah, it's, it's very true. Um, and, and actually, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, and if, if we want to spend more on health care than anybody else, that's every nation has the right and the ability to decide for itself how much health care it wants relative to food or 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 um, uh, housing or recreation or anything else. The crime here and the real problem in the U.S. health care system is not that we're spending so much, but that so much of that money is being completely wasted. And um, actually, about of every dollar that you pay in your taxes for health care or in premiums for your health insurance, uh, about one-third of that has absolutely no role whatsoever in, in providing care, buying medicines, uh, or doing anything except supporting the administrative overhead of this amazing, ridiculous system that we've, we've got here in the United States. Let's address that. Uh, you note that we buy more health care goods and services than any other country. The goods cost more here. And, and then, indeed, much of that money goes to administrative overhead. The book is full of some interesting facts. One that amazed me was that Americans will pay almost as much for administrative costs for a hospital stay here in the U.S. for the entire cost that a Canadian will spend for a stay there, even though they stay in the hospital longer. That's right, yeah. Uh, and, and that's been a, a growing trend. Um, the, the percentage of, of, of uh, the health care dollar that's been spent on administrative overhead and just really just paperwork has been increasing exponentially since 1970. And there are, there are a couple good examples of that I, um, that, are, that are pretty graphic. Imagine this. If the health care administrative cost of the U.S. health care system were its own independent country, 
it would have the 18th largest gross <laughs> domestic product in the world just after the <laughs> Netherlands. Holy mackerel. Now, now think about that. $750 billion a year to do nothing but push paper around and to force doctors and patients to do things that they ordinarily wouldn't want to do because they actually have nothing whatsoever to do with making people better. Um, and and you think about the G20, right, the 20 most, most developed countries in the world, or the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Again, if it were its own independent country, healthcare administrative costs in the U.S. would be a member of that. <laughs> and and to, to put it in another way, take the number of people that are involved in processing paperwork for healthcare. In 1970, there were 1.5 people who were administrators for every doctor in the United States. Um, now, in year 2011, there are about 5.7 people who are administrators for every doctor in the United States. That comes to over 5 million people who do nothing but process transactions uh, for insurance companies and for doctors and for pharmacies and for the government and deal with government regulations and rules and everything else. Uh, that's a phenomenal waste of time and money that does nothing to make a single person better off than they were before, except the people in the industry who are making their salaries that way. And we need to talk about that a little bit later, too. I mean, there are their whole industries springing up just, just because of our inefficiencies. But in, in talking about how dollars disappear, we should, we should maybe review the fact that Medicare, Medicaid, or in, which in California is Medi-Cal, and even private insurers, they never pay the full amount uh, of what's charged by, by physicians, which is a crazy system. It's common for Medicare and, and, and Medi-Cal to pay less than the actual cost of the treatment. Sometimes rules prohibit providers from charging more than that, more than whatever insurers are going to pay. And this is creating some huge distortions in the healthcare market. Well, this is one of the big problems uh, and the reasons we have so much administrative overhead. Basically, since, since um, the late 1970s, the federal government has essentially been fixing the price of healthcare care goods and services throughout the country um, uh, unilaterally. And actually, uh, in the late 1970s, the government uh, literally um, took over and fixed the cost of uh, virtually everything as part of the anti-inflation movement uh, that occurred uh, with the gasoline price spikes and that sort of thing. But then they continued uh, on uh, by um, regulating prices until in the late 1980s when they came up with a bizarre scheme for setting prices in healthcare in the United States. And this is a scheme that isn't used anywhere else in the entire world. It's completely unique to the United States, just as our spending enormous amounts on administrative overhead is com completely unique. Probably and, not a coincidence, I would, I would hasten yeah. to add. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not a coincidence. And what they did was they had a single guy at Harvard invent out of thin air a way of setting prices for healthcare goods and services in the U.S. that had nothing whatsoever to do with the value that people got out of those, but simply was a, a result of uh, some, some equations that he came up with to say, well, you know, things ought to cost this much, 
because let's say uh, you're doing a, a procedure removing a brain tumor. Well, you use this much time, and you're supposed to use this much effort, and you're supposed to use this much malpractice expense, and you're supposed to use this much uh, uh, expertise and labor. And so I think it ought to cost this much. And we're going to set up everything else in healthcare to be some fraction of equivalency between everything else in healthcare. Now, this is bizarre. It's almost as if you're saying, well, the price of corn ought to be $3 a bushel because the price of, of, of beef is $2.40 a pound. And we're going to fix those ratios of the price of corn and the price of beef regardless of how much value people get out of a bushel of corn or a pound of beef. <laughs> it's even though they have nothing really whatsoever to do with one another, we're going to set the price based on the inputs, not on whether people want them or people, whether we have too much, we have too little, people want them or people don't want them. And as a consequence, um, everything in healthcare is regulated by this entire government scheme that involves thousands of codes. There are about 14,000 codes for everything that happens. So everything that happens to you as a patient is reduced by the healthcare system to a number, a code. It's all based on procedures, too. This is Everything's called a procedure. That's right. Everything is called a procedure, whether, whether you talk to a patient or whether you operate on them or whether you, you simply um, take and remove some earwax. Those are all called procedures. And so as, as a consequence, um, uh, not only is the price of everything fixed, but in terms of keeping track of everything, there is an enormous amount of paperwork because for everything that happens, you have to tell the government or insurance companies, because virtually every insurance company has adopted the government system, what happened. Um, uh, you have to document all of these different things uh, that they say that you have to document in order to justify it's happening. You have to use the appropriate codes uh, for, for the procedures and whatnot. And if anything is wrong anywhere down the line, then the whole thing has to be done over again at enormous expense. And it's hard to describe because I don't know of anything else like it in the, in the United States economy. It's almost as if you went to buy a gallon of gas and you had to fill out paperwork depending upon whether the gas was ethyl or regular or premium or diesel, and the paperwork is different for every one of those. And the price of all of those things has no relationship to the price of oil uh, necessarily or how much, how much value you get out of it, uh, but they're related to the price of what someone thinks it ought to cost who isn't actually there at the time. We're speaking with author Douglas A. Predney, M.D., about his excellent book, Overhauling America's Healthcare Machine. You're talking about how this crazy system of billing works. People think we're exaggerating, and I can, I can assure our listeners, you are not. This is how it works. It is insane. No doctor really has any idea what he's getting paid because there's this huge intermediary between him and the patient. Then the crime there is that the presence of that huge intermediary takes money that could and should be used to provide goods and services that you've paid for through your premiums and taxes and simply turns those into a bizarre system in which no one knows the price of anything, no one knows the cost of anything until the very end when they run it through all of their computers and say, well, tell you what, um, 
you're going to pay this much as a patient, and you're going to get this much as a doctor. We're not going to tell you how or why, but, um, but uh, um, you just live with it. And it makes everyone worse off without making anyone better off. It's a, it's a very strange situation. I mean, you point out in the book, it's 88% of healthcare payments come via these third parties, and this is just creating gigantic confusion. Yeah, um, and, and uh, what's even worse is it inflates the cost of everything. So, so people ask, well, gee, you know, how can you possibly charge me $2,000 for, a, for, a, for a, a CT scan or an MRI, uh, or how can you charge me $500 for an office visit? Well, no one ever gets paid those prices, um, uh, except, ironically, people who pay cash. <laughs> Because people who pay cash tend to pay the highest prices of anyone anywhere in the system. The government and the insurance companies all set their own discounts uh, based upon whatever they think they ought to be paying. Um, And the people who are really hurt by the whole thing are patients who are uninsured uh, and people who have to pay their own way. Um, Ironically, the other people who are hurt are health care providers for whom it's becoming more expensive to practice and many of them are actually looking to get out of practice because even with all these high prices, the amount they get paid is actually very, very low. And in some cases, it's not even possible to keep the doors open and the lights on in your office um, with what's being paid by insurances like Medicare and Medicaid anymore. I think people find that hard to believe, but again, I'm, I'm here to tell people it is true. Is there another industry out there where paying cash is a disadvantage? I, I can think of another one. Usually you pay cash, you pay less. I don't know of any other industry in which is the case. And the, and the irony in all of this is that it's completely artificial. Mm-hmm. Um, it was created intentionally for the purposes of protecting insurance companies and protecting the government, which is in fact the largest insurer in the United States, um, protecting their interests by making it tough for people to know what's going on, because if people knew that all of this was happening, they would probably scream bloody murder and say, you people are all criminals in terms of, of the way you're operating your insurance companies or the way you're operating uh, the publicly funded, funded health care system. Um, no one would stand for it. You note in the book that when transactions are that complex, that's at best fostering inefficiency, and at worst, it's fostering corruption because no one can no one can keep track of the money. Well, think about it. The, the only time people rely on complexity is when they want to hide things. <laughs> so, if you want to hide money from the government, you use you use a whole series of uh, off, offshore accounts in order to make sure that no one knows what's going on. And if you want to uh, uh, want to to pay someone for a, for an illicit transaction, you do it in cash and you do it in the dark of night. And essentially, every transaction that's taking place in healthcare is done in the dark of night because nobody can figure out what's happening in terms of of how much is being paid relative to all those contracts that are being signed between you, the patient, and your insurance company, and and your doctor. And that insurance company, so um, it's it's a it's a very it's a very not only an inefficient system, it's a system which which um, uh, to continue it is uh, it, it's really a a, um, a crime <laughs> to to the citizens of the United States, um, and and the big problem with uh, the Affordable Care Act that was passed is that virtually none of it 
addresses any of the administrative overhead or inefficiencies in the system, and that's a terrible shame. It's a terrible, terrible loss. But your book is not very political, but you did note in passing that the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, better known to its enemies anyway as Obamacare, doesn't really address any of the issues you're talking about. No, no, and, and in fact, as, as is usual in Washington, um, you can pretty much take the name of any bill uh, um, that, that people give a bill, turn it around, and that's what the actual <laughs> meaning is. So, so if, you, if you have the, uh, uh, you know, so support the Elderly Act, it's almost always going to have the, the effect of, uh, of, of, um, of making the elderly worse off. In this case, the Affordable uh, uh, Care Act um, uh, means that nothing's going to be affordable, and there are no patient protections involved whatsoever, uh, because people will have insurance, but they'll still be subjected to the exact same system, which is causing most of the expense and most of the problems in securing health care services that we have, that we, we see every day. Let's talk about some of the games insurers play. We know that they do their best, of course, to exclude high-risk patients from their pool of customers, which only makes sense from their business model. Can you talk about that and some of the other methods they use to help balance their books, especially delaying payments? The interesting thing is that people, uh, I want to I want to preface this, these comments, and, and I want to um, uh, say that in Oregon here, there is actually a bill that was submitted to install a single-payer system uh, in the state of Oregon. And many people talk about a single-payer system as if it's going to be some great remedy to fix all of the problems that we have. <clears throat> the problem here uh, is that you have to remember, and this is a very important thing for all of your listeners to remember, is that insurers are insurers are insurers, <laughs> regardless of whether they're private insurers or public insurers. They have all the same interests and all of the same motivations. Because when you're an insurance company, you want to maximize the amount of money you keep and minimize the amount of money you actually pay out. <laughs> that's, that's just the way it is. Sure. And that's, that's not to blame insurance companies. That's just, it's, it's like blaming blaming a, a, a wolf for eating, a, eating a, 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 a fluffy bunny. The wolf, that's the way the wolf lives. So uh, you can't complain when you're saying, you know, that bunny was really fluffy and cute. I can't believe you're eating it. And the wolf says, well, hey, it's what I do. Well, insurance companies, their job, uh, essentially, they see their job as, as preventing uh, the payment of, um, uh, payment of money. And so there are many things you can do. One thing you can do is make the paperwork very difficult to fill out. So that, let's say, um, um, you submit a claim for some work that you've done as a provider. If the paperwork's difficult to fill out and all of the boxes need to be checked and all the I's dotted and T's crossed, if you've missed a single one of those uh, I's or T's or check boxes, they can send it back to you. And they can say, you know what? We're not going to pay this because you didn't meet the requirements. And that's why much of the insurance paperwork is so complicated and so, and so obtuse. Um, and, in fact, another thing they can do is they can ask for more information. It got to be so bad in the insurance business that many states had to pass what are called prompt payment laws, which say that, says that you have only 60 or 90 days from the time you receive an insurance claim to pay it. Otherwise, that's being abusive. <laughs> and, so, and so insurance companies responded by saying, well, gosh, sometimes we need more time than that, especially if, if the claim is unclear or we need more information. 
So what they did was, in most prompt payment laws, they have exclusions that say, if you, the insurance company, request more medical information, then the clock stops on the prompt payment laws, and you have another 60 days. So one thing an insurance company can do is simply say, hey, I need more information. Send me the chart on this case. And immediately, uh, that process stops, and the doctor is left without their compensation uh, for a longer period of time. Now, you might say, well, as a patient, what do I care? Well, the reason you care is the longer the doctor is without compensation, the harder it is for them to stay in practice and the higher they have to raise their rates in order to make ends meet. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And it doesn't have to be this way. I want to give you a a really good example. In Germany, which has over 200 nonprofit insurance companies, the law says in Germany that if you as an insurance company don't pay your claims within three days, the insurance company has to give you as a patient your entire next month's premium for free. The Germans are efficient, and they operate a very efficient healthcare system. Um, And that's part of efficiency. Efficiency means getting the most output for, for the given input that you have, and every time um, an insurance company uh, tries to delay or make it difficult to receive payment, you're just increasing the cost of the system as a whole. Another thing the insurance companies do is they, uh, they will say, <clears throat> say things like, well, we're going to require that you get preauthorizations for everything. In other words, before you can have the operation that, that that the doctor thinks you need, given that the doctor is a medical expert, we're going to require that they ask us for permission first. And we're going to take that permission, and uh, and we're going to to delay it and say, no, we don't think so, even though we're not there. This is an everyday occurrence in medicine. That's just something doctors live with every day. And and the problem with this is that uh, eventually – um, doctors only have so much time and patients only have so much time. And what insurers are relying on is that sooner or later, a certain percentage of people will give up and say, you know, I don't have time to ask for this anymore. Why don't we just do something else, even if it's not as good? Um, and that's a problem, too. Now, in France, where, where they have, uh, they have um, a, a much more efficient way of providing health care, the insurance company has to pay for whatever it is that the doctor has ordered. And then if they have problems with it afterwards, they can appeal that um, and they can ask that uh, they get their money back or that there be some modification made to the claim, but they have to have a good reason. Here in the United States, the onus is actually on the patient and the physician to provide the good reason for doing what really needs to be done. Right. And, uh, and that creates an enormous amount of inefficiency simply because you have legions and legions of usually untrained, non-medical people at insurance companies who are following their script who say, no, I don't think so. Uh, ask me again. Yeah, you mentioned the book. I just love this. There's a whole industry that's arisen in the claims denial management. I mean, talk about something we want to hate. <laughs> 
actually an excellent blog. Uh, uh, it, it, this whole thing is called covert rationing. It means it is really a way of rationing health care in secret. You're, you know, the insurance companies or the government can legitimately say, well, we don't ration health care services. Why? We cover all of these procedures. But if they make it hard to get the procedures and they make it hard enough to pay, get paid for the procedures, they're really rationing them, but it's done under the table. Right. It's it's it has the same effect, but it's much more expensive, ironically, to do things covertly than it is to do it overtly. And there's a there's a wonderful blog actually called the Covert Rationing Blog um, on the internet, where where one doctor observed that that insurance companies, in their zeal to save money, have actually done just about everything short of sending ninjas out in the middle of the night to bump off any particularly expensive patients that happen to be on their rolls. He's not far wrong. <laughs> so, so it turns out to be a, a major problem for, for everybody. Dr. Predney, we have a lot of ground to cover. We've done well so far, but we have to have you come back and talk about this at greater length, maybe, maybe even in two more segments to do this properly. Does that, does that sound okay to you? That sounds perfectly fine. Unfortunately, it's a big, important topic, and, and it, it's hard to explain uh, uh, in concrete terms in a short period of time. Well, one solution I can suggest to listeners is they actually get the book, Overhauling America's Healthcare Machine, and read it, because obviously the 300 pages, we can't possibly begin to cover all that, even discussing this for an hour. But uh, there it is. People may want to get your book. <laughs> yeah, and another place I can uh, suggest going is to my blog, I have a blog called Road to Health, uh, H, but it, health is spelled H-E-L-L-T-H <laughs> dot com. So it's, it's R-O-A-D dot two, dot com, the road to health dot com. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's, it's uh, healthcare, as with every other thing, is paved with mixed intentions. There are a lot of people who have good intentions uh, that go awry, but in some cases, like many of the insurance tricks we've been talking about, the intentions are less than uh, honorable. Well, Dr. Prednia, thanks for speaking with us. We will pick this up again either uh, next week or the week after, and we'll do this right. Great. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be here. All righty. 